We'll be reading that in just a minute, beginning with verse 19. First, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to take communion. It's been several months and the opportunity to remember and to reflect and to thank you. Uh, the, <laughs> Pastor Ryan was talking about the, uh, the way we've had to alter things and the inconvenience is so minor compared to, uh, the inconvenience that you went through for us. We're just so grateful for the fact that, uh, that because of Jesus Christ, we are justified. Um, we are reconciled. Um, we have been redeemed. We have been saved. We are being transformed. We are being sanctified. We will be glorified. Um, and all because of your fantastic love uh, towards us, manifested in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Uh, we continue to worship now as we uh, pay attention to your word, as we read and study your word. And I ask, Lord, that you would help us to heed your word. Um, Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. Um, continue to shape us. May your Holy Spirit minister to each one of us according to our needs. And you know better than we do what those needs are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, a lot of people think about the future. A lot of people think about the immediate immediate future, but but not enough people think about the long-term future. You know, the discussion today is, uh, you know, what the future holds in terms of the United States, in terms of, you know, the election or the election that's still being processed or whatever. A lot of people are thinking about COVID, uh, coronavirus, what's going what's gonna to happen in the next few months. When are we going to get out of this? And I was just talking with Jewel, and Jewel says it feels like we're back right at March. You know, we're at March and April again. Uh, you know, when are we, when are we going to come through this? Um, but not, not enough people are thinking about the long-term future. What about that time when the Bible talks about Antichrist coming? What about that time when, um, when Jesus returns? What about that thing in the Bible called the millennium? Not a lot of people are thinking about that. What about that time when it says that the... Um, the, the heavens will be burned with fire and the elements will melt in the heat and then will emerge the new heavens and the new earth. And a lot of people think about their own personal future, but they aren't thinking about what will happen at the end of their life. What will happen at death? You know, we think about 2021. You know, we're so, we're so looking forward to getting out of 2020. Is 2021 going to be better? Uh, you know, people thinking about raising their kids about building their savings, possibly, you know, possibly changing jobs. What about their career? Uh, maybe a new home, maybe a new car. Where to vacation next year? What will retirement look like? Some people are plan even to their plan even to their death. You know, wills, um, securing burial plots, even laying out their funeral uh, service so that their their kids <clears throat> or those who follow them don't have to. But what about after they're buried? What about after their body is in the grave? Their soul doesn't cease to exist. What will they be doing having left that body? Where will they be? What about the afterlife? What about, what about eternity? I need this thing. Okay, so there's the sermon title. Um, you need to plan for your eternity. You need to plan for your eternity. 
Just as we plan for our immediate future or for a vacation or for a move or for retirement, so we need to plan for, we need to think about, we need to be informed about eternity. And the Bible helps us to do that. Now, a lot of people think that the Bible is an old, crusty book. It's ancient. It's out of date. But in fact, the Bible is timeless. The Bible is fantastically relevant. The Bible certainly talks about the past, but it doesn't just talk about the past. It talks about the present, and it certainly talks about the future as well. And when the Bible does talk about the past, it talks about the past with an eye toward helping us to live right in the present and to helping us live well in eternity. Um, With that in mind, uh, Luke chapter 16, this parable that we're going to look at that Jesus told, um, talks a little bit about the future. So let's look at this parable, beginning with verse 19. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was left at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot. Neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house, because I have five brothers, to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. So we have two primary characters here in this parable. We have a rich man and we have a poor man. And we're given the name of the poor man. His name is Lazarus. It's interesting that Jesus only gives one name, that we only know one name. I'm guessing that in their earthly life, everybody knew the rich man's name. Everybody knew who he was. They knew his name. They were familiar with him. The poor man, Lazarus, I'm guessing that not too many people knew his name. But when they pass on into eternity, the reverse, uh, the situation seems to reverse. From the perspective of eternity, Lazarus is the name that is known. We don't know this rich man's name. And in fact, in eternity, he is no longer rich. He had to beg even for a drop of water, and he was denied even that. So we're going we're gonna to examine this parable in three sections, and then we're going to draw out a couple lessons. First, Jesus describes their earthly life. He describes their earthly life in verses 19 through 21. Verse 19 shows us uh, the rich man. There was a rich man who would dress in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. So we read about this rich man that he dressed well. He ate well. According to the text, he feasted lavishly every day. How many of you do that? (laughs) 
feast lavishly every day? Wilder does. Thank you, Wilder, for being honest. Appreciate that. <laughs> uh, he lived well. He lived well. His, his appears to be a life of ease, of comfort, of security, a literally carefree life, a carefree life. But then verses 20 and 21 show us Lazarus. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was left at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from rich man, from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. Um, so we see here Lazarus that he was poverty stricken. He was unhealthy. He was afflicted. He was miserable. It says he was covered with sores. It reminded me of the story of, of the account of Job, how when he was afflicted by God, he was covered with boils from the uh, top of his head to the soles of his feet. Lazarus appears to be somewhat immobile or or very weak, for he's left at the gate. Other translations say, saying he's, he's laid at the gate. In other words, laid, uh, left there by others, implying, implying that he was brought there by others um, to beg. We read that he's starving. He longed to be filled with the food that fell from the rich man's table. But he didn't receive any attention from the rich man. The only attention he received was from dogs. It was from dogs. The dogs would come, it says, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. Now some of you might like to be licked by dogs. It's not my favorite thing. But some of you might like that. But in, in, in Jesus' day, dogs were not household pets. Dogs were ceremonially unclean animals. They were scavengers. And the fact that they came and licked his sores communic- made Lazarus ceremonially unclean. So not only was he physically unfit, but now um, the dogs come and they make him ceremonially unclean with regards to the, to the temple and so forth. And the dogs were scavengers. They were like vultures circling an animal on the verge of death. Such is the condition of the rich man in his life and the condition of Lazarus, Lazarus in his life. That's their earthly life. But then Jesus passes on to describe their afterlife or their eternity, what happens in eternity. Verses 22 and 23. One day... The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. So both men die. Death comes to both men. Um, We're not surprised to learn that Lazarus passed away. Uh, He was starving. He was sickly. Uh, But the rich man also passes away. And honestly, we're not too surprised by that because everyone dies. The rich sometimes uh, try to stave off death as long as they possibly can. And uh, those who are very wealthy even put their hope in science that someday uh, science will bring back their frozen head or their frozen body that they've uh, paid to have uh, frozen. Uh, But uh, all all such attempts have so far been unsuccessful. Lazarus, we read, is escorted to Abraham's side. In other translations, it reads to Abraham's bosom. Abraham's chest, which is interesting. Um, when you think about the fact that in Jesus' day, when they had a meal, when they shared a meal together, they would often recline. They wouldn't sit on chairs. They would recline uh, around the table in order to eat. And we read on the Last Supper, at the Last Supper, that um, the, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, his head was resting on Jesus' bosom or on Jesus' chest. So are we to see here that Lazarus in Abraham's bosom is having a meal. Finally, he's having a decent meal on the other side. Um, when Lazarus dies, he is no longer ignored. 
Angels come to him and guide him to where his Lord would have him. Well, what about the rich man? We read that the rich man was died and was buried. There's no record here of angels with regards to him, but that doesn't mean he could wander wherever he wanted to in the afterlife. Jesus says that he was in torment in Hades, in the place of the dead. Now, in another parable, a few chapters earlier in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells a parable about another rich man. And in this case, that rich man is thinking about tearing down all his barns in order to build bigger barns because he has so much food. He has so much wealth. And it just makes sense to tear everything down and build bigger stuff in order that he can store all of his wealth. But even as he's drawing up the blueprints, God interrupts him and says, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you. It's very interesting, that word required. Uh, His soul was required of him. That rich man died that night because his soul was required. He was summoned. He was arrested, if you will. And that's the situation of the rich man also in the parable that we're looking at in Luke chapter 16. It's not by accident that he is in torment in Hades. His soul was required of him. The one thing... One thing you can take away from this is that you don't have to worry about when you die. uh, The one thing you don't have to worry about is knowing where to go because you will be guided to one place or another. If you're a believer, the angels will guide you. The Lord Jesus will meet you. Um, there's, There's no problem of getting lost on either side. And finally, then, the third section is uh, explanations, then, regarding their afterlife. Explanations regarding their afterlife. And that's the longest part of this parable. Because the rich man and Abraham have a long conversation, um, which gives us some insight as to our future. The rich man makes two requests of Abraham. The first one is in verse 24. Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. So the first request that uh, that uh, la- uh, the rich man makes of Abraham is for relief, for just relief. And notice he, he asked for just the barest amount, barest amount of relief. I'd be asking for, you know, uh, a water cooler perhaps or a fire hose. <laughs> Uh, he, he simply asked for Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to come to him and touch it to his tongue. Um, that wouldn't cool the body at all. Um, it would just give a little momentary relief to his tongue. The rich man asked for just a little relief because the torment is unrelenting. The torment is unrelenting. He asked for just a slight taste of relief. Abraham doesn't specifically say no, but he gives two reasons why his request will not be fulfilled, why his request cannot be fulfilled. The first reason is in verse 25. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things, and now he is comforted here while you are in agony. What happened in their earthly life has affected their station in eternity has affected their place in eternity lazarus suffered and is now comforted the rich man wanted for nothing and now he wants for everything even a drop of water it's interesting that in their earthly life lazarus longed for just the table scraps 
just the crumbs from the table. He longed for that, and it was denied him by the rich man. On the other side, the rich man longs for just a drop of water, and it's also denied him. Now, the question we need to answer here is, is the rich man being punished simply because he was rich? Is he being punished because he was wealthy? And I've already heard some of you say no. I'm presuming that's the rich among you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and let me just, let me just divert from my notes a minute. We are all wealthy when compared to if you, if you look at our demographics or our, our income, uh, the finances that are available to us compared to the world, we're all wealthy. So this passage is definitely speaking to all of us. But no, he was not being punished simply because he was rich. rich. And let me just give you a few reasons for that. Get a little context here. First of all, Abraham is not in torment in Hades. Now, if you think back to the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, let me ask you this question. Was Abraham wealthy or was he poor? He was very wealthy. Abraham was very wealthy, and he's also the father of all those who believe. The father of all those who believe. So being wealthy in and of itself is not a sin. The question is, what are you doing with your wealth? Second, in the parable of the rich fool that I mentioned earlier, in chapter 12, Jesus explains why that man's soul was required of him. And Jesus says in, in Luke 12:21, that's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The issue is that that rich man was not rich toward God. And that's the issue with this rich man as well. He's not rich towards God. The problem isn't wealth. The problem is when that wealth isn't used properly, isn't being used in being rich toward God. Third, in, 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 this, in, in chapter 16, where our parable is, there's a parable at the beginning of this uh, chapter. And the point of that parable is that God has an expectation that we will use earthly money for heavenly purposes, that we'll use what he calls unrighteous money for righteous purposes, or that we'll use our physical money, our physical resources, what's available to us, for spiritual purposes. Fourth, Look, if you have your Bibles open, just look back at uh, verse 14, chapter 16, verse 14. Who is he, who is Jesus specifically telling this story to? Verse 14 tells us, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. So these parables at the beginning of chapter 16 and this one that we're looking at at the end of chapter 16 are specifically directed at the Pharisees who loved what? They loved money. Okay, that's and he's calling that out. Loving money, not a good thing. Um, and then finally, in terms of context, in our own story, Lazarus was poor and starving, and he longed for even table scraps from the rich man. But there's no indication that the rich man ever helped him. The only attention Lazarus got was from scavenging dogs. The rich man is not being punished simply because he's rich. Rather, he is being held accountable for the fact that all his money went this way, that it was all focused on him. He was being held accountable for his lack of hospitality, his lack of charity, his self-centered heart that focused all the benefits of his income upon himself, the fact that he was rich towards himself but not rich towards God. 
Charles Dickens wrote A Christmas Carol. Many of you are no doubt familiar with it. In it, at the beginning, the ghost of Jacob Marley explains to Ebenezer Scrooge why he, why he, Marley, is in chains. And that, it's because he was so self-absorbed in his earthly life. He says, my spirit never walked beyond our counting house. Mark me, in life my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole. The Lord Jesus calls you to meet needs as you have opportunity. He calls you to meet needs as you have opportunity to give to others, to be charitable, to be generous, and to be sacrificial. Look again at verse 25. Uh, I'll try to. There it is. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things. You received your good things. Notice how the rich man came by his wealth. He received them. Now, maybe he had an inheritance. Um, maybe his maybe his his father had earned all the wealth and it was simply passed on to him. Or it could be that he worked really hard and he earned that money. But ultimately, he received it because the ability, the Bible tells us, the ability to work, the ability to have a job, the provision of employment also comes from the Lord. So ultimately, that wealth, he didn't earn it in the ultimate sense. That's all a gift from God. And in fact, all your wealth... Um, is a gift from God. And if you worked hard for it, that's, thank God that he gives you the physical frame and the physical strength in order to work and the mental acuity in order to work and so forth. Because ultimately all our wealth is from God. And what he received, he was, he was to use to be rich towards God. And a lot of being rich toward God involves helping others and meeting needs. Uh, John Chrysostom was a preacher in the 4th century, and he was, he preached a series of sermons on this parable about 1,600 years ago. And in one of those sermons, he remarked that it is robbery when we don't impart our good things to others. It's robbery when we don't share our good things with others. Why? Because ultimately our good things come from where? They come from the Lord. First John 3.17, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? In A Christmas Carol, when Ebenezer Scrooge is talking with the ghost of Jacob Marley, he tries to control, he tries to console Marley. He tries to console Marley. And he says, but you were always a good man, a good man of business, Jacob, faltered Scrooge, who now began to apply this to himself. Business, cried the ghost, wringing its hands again. Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Marley recognizes now on the other side that mankind, the common welfare, helping others, that was his business. He was wrong about it when he had lived. Our God-given business is others. Our God-given business is others. Compassion, benevolence, charity, forbearance, so forth. Now, in his earthly life, Lazarus, Lazarus's body was unhealthy. But now we're beginning to see that the rich man was also unhealthy in his earthly life, just in, not in an obvious way. He didn't have sores on his body. In fact, he looked nice. He dressed nice. But the sores he had were on the inside. He had an unhealthy, he had a diseased um, soul. 
God did not figure much into his life at all, and neither did his neighbor. And the point of this parable is that it's better to have a diseased body than to have a diseased soul. Well, Abraham gives a second reason why the rich man's request will not be granted. It's in verse 26. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those uh, so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. See, Lazarus can't get to the rich man, um, and the rich man can't get to Lazarus. In other words, once you die, your eternal destiny is set. Um, it's fixed. Hence the importance of being right with God now. Hence the importance of getting right with God in this life. Um, and the way you get right with God is by coming to his son, Jesus Christ. It means acknowledging to God that you're a sinner and embracing Jesus Christ as your Savior and embracing him as your Lord and then turning from your sins and starting to do the will of the Lord. You see, if you die as a believer, if you die as a believer, you have joy for eternity in heaven. But if you die as an unbeliever, the die is cast and it's misery for eternity. C.S. Lewis uh, was once told about a gravestone, a tombstone inscription. And the inscription read, Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. And C.S. Lewis remarked, I bet he wishes that was so. I bet he wishes that was the end. The rich man makes a second request of Abraham in verses 27 to 28. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father, to send Lazarus to my father's house, because I have five brothers to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. He wants to send Lazarus, uh, to, so that at least the rest of his family will be warned to change their ways so that they won't end up in torment. And the conversation continues in verses 29 to 31. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Abraham basically says, they have the scriptures. No need to send a resurrected person to them. They have the scriptures. And the rich man says, rich man says uh, that's not enough. Because he's recalling to his earthly life. He's recalling to his life on earth, how he himself did not heed the scriptures. Um, but here's a great idea, Abraham. If you send Lazarus back from the dead and he tells them they're going to believe him. And I think, yeah, that's a great idea. That'll make a difference. But Abraham says, no, it won't make any difference at all. Won't make any difference at all. Abraham's point here, or Jesus's point really, is interesting. If people fail to listen to and believe the word of God, nothing else is going to convince them. Their hearts are so hard that they will not believe the, the evidence that they see with their eyes, the evidence that they hear with their ears, even if someone comes back from the dead. Miracles by themselves do not melt stony hearts, not even uh, resurrection miracles. It's interesting. Um, there's another Lazarus in Scripture, uh, the Lazarus who was a friend of Jesus, who was the brother of Mary and Martha, and it's interesting that that particular Lazarus died, and he did come back from the dead, right? Jesus raised him from the dead. And do you recall that uh, many of the Pharisees wanted to put Lazarus to death because people were believing in Jesus? They, they wanted to put him back in the grave. They wanted to bury the evidence, so to speak. They knew that Jesus had raised him from the dead, and yet they refused to believe. And then there was another guy who rose from the dead, too. 
and that was Jesus. And many millions and billions throughout history and around the world believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and his resurrection. But there are millions and billions throughout history and around the world who do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, despite the resurrection. So anyway, that's the story. That's the parable Jesus told to the money-hungry Pharisees. And it's also the story that the Spirit of God has put here in the Scriptures and that he's designed for all of us to be together and for you to hear today. He wanted you to hear that word today. Why? What does he want to get from this? Well, there may be, I, I want to draw out two lessons, and maybe there's other lessons that you've already drawn out from yourself that the Spirit has already said, Here, here's what you need to hear from this. But I want to draw out two in particular, point out a couple things. First, this short life of yours determines your eternity. This short life of yours determines your eternity. On the other side of the grave, the chasm is fixed and it's unbridgeable. Um, there was a book written a few years ago called Your Best Life Now. I wonder what Lazarus would have thought if he had picked up that book. <laughs> really? This is my best life now? <laughs> Being licked by dogs? Awesome. Um, I suppose that the title of that book depends completely on what your eternal destination is. For the rich man, his earthly life was his best life. But the reality is that now is not your best life, necessarily. Now is your test life. Now is your test life. Because this life is the test. And based on how you respond to the, the one question, what will you do with Jesus Christ, determines where you'll end up in the future. Where is your heart? Is it with Jesus? Are you rich toward God? Do you love the Lord? Are you meeting the needs of others? As one writer puts it, one's attitude to God and his word is confirmed in this life, and that cannot be altered in the next. One's attitude toward God and his word. So what is your attitude toward God and his word? Is he your Lord and is his word your daily food, your daily bread, your daily meat? Is your life oriented around the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you living for yourself, for your own pleasures? Are you building your own little kingdom at home? Or building your own little kingdom at work? Are you advancing your kingdom or God's kingdom? And then the second thing is, um, well, I already said that. Are you rich toward God? Are you rich toward God? Are you seeking to be as comfortable and financially secure as you possibly can in this life or in the next. God has a lot to say about money all throughout the scriptures. And it's not all, make sure you take care of yourself. <laughs> um, of course, we are to provide for our families. But, but when he says we're to provide for our families, that, to what level does that mean we're to provide for our families? We're to use money for spiritual purposes. For spiritual purposes, when Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven as opposed to treasures on earth, he means use your physical resources to advance the kingdom. So use money to help people, help people with their physical needs, but also with their spiritual needs. To paraphrase Jacob Marley, mankind is your business. The common welfare is your business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence are all your business. And there are a lot of needs. There are a lot of needs. And you can't possibly meet them all. But you can help some. You can help. You can help one. Does God entrust money to you because he knows you're going to use it wisely and use some of it to help others? 
Which is true of you? Do you believe that if you give sacrificially to meet needs that God will sustain you in one way or another? Or are you constantly pretty frugal in your generosity because you're often a little anxious about the future? Do you identify more with Ebenezer Scrooge um, in the early part of his life when he was a miser? Or do you identify more with Ebenezer Scrooge at the end of his life when he was liberally generous? How would your spouse answer that question about you? How would your parent answer that question about you or your child? Your nice house one day is going to be destroyed in one way or another. Your shiny vehicle is heading for the junkyard eventually. Your home theater system is going to be junked. But the souls you touched through the church you gave to or through the missionaries that you supported, um, the Bibles that you gave uh, that you gave to to others, the Bibles that you per- that you gave money towards to be purchased and placed, the ministries that you wrote checks to, the people the 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 people who were down and out to whom you gave a ten or a twenty or you wrote a check to, that's all noted in heaven. That's all noted in heaven. Proverbs nineteen seventeen: Whoever gives to the poor lends to the Lord. When you give to the poor, you're lending to the Lord, and He will repay him for his deed, and He will repay him for his deed. Who knows how many people have been saved because of your generosity? And I mean, I mean spiritually saved. Their souls have been transformed because you've given to this ministry or another ministry. Who knows how many people in the future will come to know the Lord because you used your unrighteous mammon, as Jesus calls it earlier in Luke 16, in order to bring about spiritual good in the lives of others. This parable is designed to have you reflect on how you respond to people like Lazarus. It challenges you to ask yourself, what am I doing? What am I doing? And of course the need is great, but you can help. You can help someone. The Apostle Paul um, writes in Galatians 2, this is just an example from the life of the Apostle Paul. He says, James, Cephas, and John agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they should go to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor the very thing I had been eager to do all along. It is by grace that you have been saved. If you're saved, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. That's how you've been saved. You are not saved because you give so much to the poor or you give so much to this church. You are not saved because you give away 10% of your income or 25% of your income or 90% of your income. That does not save you. That does not save you. You are saved through grace. But that grace through which you are saved should be shaping and molding you into someone who is generous, who is not only looking at their, at your own needs, but looking outward to the needs of others and is sharing what God has given you in order to meet other people's needs. Well, I want to con- conclude this sermon um, the way uh, G. Campbell Morgan concluded it when he was preaching on this passage. Um, over a century ago. He said, Carried by the angels, buried and awake in anguish. Which? It depends on whether life is adjusted to the kingdom of God or conformed to the false standards of men. And I guess the question I have for you is, is your soul adjusted? Is your soul, is your life adjusted to that of the kingdom of God or is it adjusted to the way life is lived in our culture? 
Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word, and we thank you for the challenge uh, to us um, to make sure that we are right with you in this life because that chasm, um, there is no changing anything in the next life. This is the test. Now is the test. And And my prayer is that everyone in here is walking with the Lord and that if there are people in this room who don't know you, who do not have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, who have not been saved, who are counting on their own good works to make it into heaven, Father, I pray that you would show them uh, the error of their ways and that they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. And Father, help us to be generous. Um, help us to be um, to share our resources with others. Help us to be need meters. And we have uh, our, our, our greatest example is in is in you, Lord Jesus. Um, So bless, we pray. Uh, Help us, Lord, and guide us in the use of all the things that you have given us in terms of our time, in terms of our talent, uh, in terms of our resources. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.